Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16. Uh, we will begin in a moment at verse 11 and go through verse 18. Acts 16, 11 through 18. When I went off to college, uh, I was the first in my family to do so, and so it was a little unknown, a little scary, and I arrived there and began to start meeting the others who were around and introducing myself, and the, the guys in the room next to me, um, we shared a lot in common. We, we both unpacked these really large um, stereo systems. For you young people, back in the day, it was cool to have a big, big stereo. You know, nowadays it's cool to have the little tiny things you stick in your ears. But back then, big stereo was cool. Well, we both had these really big stereo systems. And then we found out that uh, uh, I drove the ugliest, most run-down jalopy in the parking lot, and the guy next door drove the second ugliest, most run-down jalopy in the parking lot. And then we got to talking to each other, and we'd both grown up in, you know, in, in, in stable, you know, middle-class uh, uh, families, church-going families. We had a lot in common, so much so that the, the next couple of years, we actually roomed together. We became close friends. So much so that he ended up marrying my sister, and he, that was just foolish. Now he's stuck with me, you know? But we had a lot in common. And because we had a lot in common, it, it created a common ground to build a friendship, to build a, something together. And I think most of us find that to be true. We tend to like those who are like us. We tend to like those who are like us. And there's something interesting. Because as we study the word, we find out that God is that way also. God is that way. But his word reminds us that every human being is created in his image. And therefore, they are all like him in some way. And if we like those who are like us, how much more does God love those created in his image? So much so, the word says, that while we were yet his enemies, he sent his son to die on our behalf. Our sermon text this morning is an illustration of two very different people, both of whom bear the image of God. And Jesus died for both of them, to redeem them, to save them. And these two very different people become united in the body of Christ, in the church, in Philippi. Let's take a look at the text and then consider it more closely. Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, to the, outside the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Let's pray. Lord, open your word to us this morning that we may see its message. Let my words be consistent with what you have to say to us today. And where we need to be changed, change us. And where we uh, need to be reassured of the grace of your gospel, reassure us. And through all of what is said here this morning, edify and build us up. For the sake of your glory and your name, we pray. Amen. Until this point in the book of Acts, Luke has been telling us the story through, the, through information provided to him by other people. I don't know if you noticed, but last week was the first time we saw that plural pronoun, we, first person plural pronoun. And we see it again here in this text. Luke is now a part of the traveling uh, group. So we have Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and maybe others. But at least those four are now traveling together. You may recall what happened last week. They had wanted to go into other parts of uh, what today we call Turkey, Asia Minor, and, and God prevented them. And we don't know how and we don't know why, but God providentially prevented them. And so through a vision, they realized that they're to go into Macedonia, northern Greece, what is today part of what we call Europe. And so that's what we have here is the account of that. And Luke says that they sailed from Troas to Samothrace. Samothrace was a mountainous island in the northern Aegean Sea, and it was a common stopover for sailing vessels in that part of the world. And then they go on to Neapolis, a port city, the, the, the port of Philippi. Philippi being the major city in the region, Neapolis is kind of, is kind of the port area, the port suburb of Philippi. And Luke happens to note that it took just two days, which was pretty fast by standards back then. It was a pretty smooth, they had a smooth voyage. And they get to Neapolis and they walk the 10 miles inland uh, to Philippi. And there they spend a few days. And Luke tells us a little something about Philippi. He tells us that it was a leading city in that region and that it was a Roman colony. Now, why does he bother to mention that? Well, some scholars have speculated, and I think they've got a good case to be made, that, that this is perhaps Luke's hometown. For we're going to see when they leave Philippi, he doesn't go with them. The wees stop. And so some have speculated that Philippi is Luke's hometown, and he's bragging on his hometown a little bit. Maybe. But I think the other thing we need to recognize is that it gives us some information about what's to come in our text today and in our text next week. We need to understand the significance of what he tells us about Philippi. So Philippi was established by King Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And it became a leading city. There were some gold mines in, the, in that area in the ancient world, so it became a wealthy city through mining gold. And it became an important city in that region. And then when Octavian defeated Mark Antony in 31 B.C., 30 or 31 B.C., um, Octavian took a bunch of the, the troops that had fought on his behalf. He goes on to become Caesar Augustus. Um, he took a bunch of the troops that had fought on his behalf, and he settled them in, there in Philippi and rewarded them by making it a colony city. 
Now, that statement that it was a Roman colony may be lost on us today, but it would have been significant to the readers back then. For you see, a Roman colony was considered to be part of Rome. Just as a U.S. embassy in another country is considered American soil and is governed by America's laws, so a Roman colony was not regarded as a conquered place. It was not regarded as one ruled over by Rome, but rather just an extension of Rome. So that the laws of Rome and the privileges of Rome carried over to the colony cities. So Philippi is just the Greek version of Rome. Or that's kind of what we're supposed to understand. And so he tells us that uh, important, important pieces of information there. And so we have... The, the, these, this group of traveling missionaries, these four men, at least four men, coming into this important city. It is in Macedonia. It is consistent with the vision and the call that Paul received. And it is the logical place to go, for it is the place where they're going to be able to reach out uh, to the, major, the most people most efficiently. And they get there, and they do what they have always done. If you've been with us for any length of time, at this point in the book of Acts, you probably understand that it was Paul's pattern to head into a new city and go right to the synagogue. For Paul, though he called himself the apostle of the Gentiles, nevertheless, he believed in the truth that the gospel was first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. He was not going to ignore God's chosen people when the word was delivered. So he, on the Sabbath day, goes to worship with his fellow Jews. But you'll notice what's said here. This time he doesn't go to a synagogue. Rather, he goes outside the city to a river. What's the significance of that? Well, in Jewish custom, you needed 10 uh, men, 10 Jewish men in a community to establish a synagogue. The fact that there is not a synagogue building, not a synagogue meeting place, implies that there were not 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. Now, that's rather shocking. This is a large, cosmopolitan city. How can there not be 10 Jews there? And in fact, the the text actually implies there were no men. For how does Luke word it? That when they do find the place of prayer, and this was Jewish practice, in a community too small for a synagogue, you went to the river and you worshipped together alongside the river. You read the scriptures together, you sang together, you discussed the scriptures together along the river, and you prayed there. And Luke says that they met only women there. The implication is there are no Jewish men. And in fact, what's interesting is the only woman who's specifically mentioned isn't Jewish herself, whether she's a God-fearing Gentile. What's going on? Well, sometime in the 40s, and we don't know exactly, historians debate when, but sometime in the 40s, Emperor Claudius issued an edict uh, uh, driving all Jews out of Rome. This is part of the basis of the book of Romans and some of the conflict. As the Jews came back to Rome later, some of the leadership positions and their churches were now very Gentile, and there was conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers as the Jews returned to Rome. And so sometime uh, uh, Claudius has driven all the Jews out of Rome. Well, many scholars speculate that being a Roman colony, that edict applied here also. And so sometime in the decade before Paul gets there, the Jews have been driven out of Philippi. And so he meets with these women alongside the river. And he shares with them 
what they claim outwardly to have been hoping for. What is it Jews were waiting for? They were waiting for the Messiah. And he says to them, the Messiah has come. Jesus of Nazareth, let me tell you about him. Let me explain to you how he came as the Messiah, not quite like many of us had expected, not with the conquest that many of us had hoped for, not with the power and might and glory that some of us had expected, but he came nevertheless. And let me explain to you how he fulfilled the very scriptures you are reading today. And Paul makes the good news of the gospel known to those who are gathered there. And we find this woman becomes a believer. Let me tell you a little bit about Lydia. First of all, Lydia may not be her name at all. You see, we're told she's from Thyatira. Thyatira was in the district called Lydia. Lydia is the name of a geographic region. Now, many of you may not know this here, but at Easton High School, our son Drew was not usually called Drew. Rather, he was known by the place he had come from, and they called him Michigan. That was his nickname on the sports teams. It was the things, we'd talk to his teachers, and they'd be looking at us, Drew, and we'd be like, Michigan, and they're like, oh, yeah, yes, Michigan. He became known by the place he had come from. And many scholars believe that's what's going on here. For something interesting happens in Acts 16. Luke is a name dropper. He loves to name people. He even names the, the slave girl Rhoda. He drops a lot of names, but he doesn't name the slave girl in this text, and he doesn't name the jailer that'll come in next week's text. And some have speculated that he did that for security reasons. Just like many missionaries today, when they send you their newsletter, won't name the people to whom they're ministering, to those converts who have come into their church. They will keep their identity for their safety, keep their identity secret. And it is speculated that Luke was doing that here. So this woman from Thyatira, who goes and, you know, for church history has ever since been known as Lydia, what do we know about her? Well, first of all, she's from Thyatira, a city of, of good reputation, of high standing in that culture and in that world. She comes from the right neighborhood. She lives on the correct side of the tracks. She lives in the right place. Now, Luke is fond of communicating to us something about uh, what the ancient world would have called the honor status of people. And one of the things that would uh, bestow honor was where you came from. So we're told right off the bat that Lydia is a woman of high honorable standing. She comes from a good neighborhood. She is a merchant of purple cloth. Sometime around this point in history, we don't know exactly when, it may have been a few years before this, a few years later, but at some point, uh, the trade in purple cloth becomes an imperial uh, monopoly. It's taken over by the emperor and becomes part of the Roman government. We all know what happens when you get a monopoly. The money begins to flow in in a hurry because there's no competition. She is the proprietor of a successful business. She is wealthy. We see that in a moment by her home, that she can accommodate these four men readily in her home. Many in the ancient world would not have been able to do that. And at the end of chapter 16, the implication is that the church that's established in Philippi is now meeting in her home. She is a successful businesswoman. And we do need to communicate a little something about Roman law, since we are in a Roman colony. This is, we should not think of this woman as we would think of some of the women that we meet in the Gospels. For in the villages of Judea, in the villages of Galilee, 
women for sure had a second-class standing. But that was not the case in imperial Rome. Women in imperial Rome had significant rights, significant access to the levers of power. They were allowed to hold positions um, even within the government. They were allowed to be uh, connected and involved in the wheels of society. So this woman is not likely to be a shrinking violet. She is a powerful, connected woman, part of an imperial monopoly. She is wealthy and she is rubbing elbows with the creme de la creme of that society. And she's a God worshiper. Luke wants us to see her as honorable, as being of high standing. She comes from the right neighborhood. She's done all the right things in business and in this world. She is honorable by the standards of this world. And oh, by the way, to my fellow Jews reading this, she's even honorable by our standards. She's a God-fearing Gentile. This is, by all accounts, a good woman. So what happens? Well, she listens to Paul. She hears the message of Jesus. She hears the gospel, and she believes. She says, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, he is Lord. He is the one I've been waiting for. He is the one to which the scriptures point, and he is the one who can save me and my household. And she is baptized, and her household is baptized. The fact that she has the authority to do that indicates she's probably a widow. It's probably not a husband in the home to make that ruling on the household being baptized. And by the way, you baptize a household in the ancient world, the odds are pretty good you're baptizing some children. And we have to recognize the truth of that. And she hosts the missionaries. She uh, implores them to come stay with her there in, was it, verse 14, sorry, 15. And they stay with her. By the way, one of the reasons that Luke mentions that, her hospitality. Luke, if you study Luke's writings, um, he is fond of pointing out how people's outward actions affirm their claims of faith. Zacchaeus. What does Zacchaeus do? He gets down and then he goes and he makes restitution for his wrongs as a sign. And Luke's the only one that records the story of Zacchaeus. And, and makes restitution. Luke tends to do it. And Luke's part of what Luke is doing there is saying, this is an affirmation that her conversion was authentic. It was real. She now begins to demonstrate her Christian uh, uh, hospitality. Verse 16 presents something of an interpretive difficulty. Notice the wording there. As we were going to the place of prayer. What does that mean? Is that in a future week? So next Sabbath, as we were headed to the prayer, or does that, is Luke now stepping back? He's told us about Lydia, and he says, and by the way, on our way to, the, to that day, we got to stop. We don't know. We don't know. And it doesn't really affect how we interpret the text. At some point, whether it be that same day or in some future Sabbath, they are accosted by a slave girl. What do we know of this slave girl? Well, she is the antithesis of Lydia in every way. She is not a woman born of a high position and from a good city and running a good, successful business. She is not at all like Lydia. She is a, 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 a girl, not a woman. She is, uh, her, her standing, her age does not put her in a place of 
honor. She is not the head of a household, but rather she is a slave in a household. She is not a proprietor of a business, but rather the tool of somebody else's business. She is not in power over others, but under the power of others. Have you ever thought about the word demon possession? What does it mean to be possessed by a demon? When we use it in that context, we tend to skip over and not think about it. But if we stop and think about it, everything else where we use the word possess, what do we mean? We mean it is owned. What I possess are the things I own. She is owned in her physical body by other human beings, and she is owned in her internal being by the powers of hell. This is a woman as far from Lydia as possible. Lydia has power and position and prestige and wealth and standing. And this slave girl has none of it. She doesn't have freedom even over her own body or her own mind. She is owned. She is possessed inwardly and outwardly. She is not wealthy, but rather she is the means of the wealth of others. She is not a worshiper of God, but probably knows nothing of the true God. These two women could not be more different. Before we move on, stop and look at verse 17. And if you are inclined, and certainly different feelings, different opinions about this, but if you're inclined to put notes and marks in your Bible, I might suggest a couple in verse 17. I'd like to suggest the following couple of changes to verse 17. Let me suggest them and then come back and explain them. Where it says there, uh, uh, Most High God with a capital G, I would suggest that be changed to a lowercase g. Hmm. And where it says uh, 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 the word uh, the in front of way of salvation, I think that that word should be crossed off. Take out the word the. It's not there in the Greek, by the way. Greek has a definite article, and it ain't there in the Greek. It's been added in English for convenience, for readability, but it conveys something that it ought not to convey. And finally, where you see the word salvation, maybe above it or below it, write the words or healing. Salvation or healing. For the word in Greek for medical healing is exactly the same word that we use for salvation. Soteria, soteriology, the study of salvation. This is why we see, when we studied uh, the the Gospel of Mark some years back, we would see some of the confusion. These people would come for salvation, and they wouldn't get the salvation they wanted because they came for healing. And Jesus gave them salvation instead. So now think about the changes I've just suggested. If we change that to a lowercase g, then she's no longer talking about the God, but rather a God. And if we take out the word the in front of the way of salvation, she's not talking about the way of salvation, but a way of salvation. And she might be talking about a way of healing. Now, why on earth would I suggest those changes? Surely we see in Luke's gospel where there is a case of a demon possession who speaks of Jesus in in words of truth and speaks of Jesus as being the God. 
But if you're in a Jewish village, if you're in a Galilean village and you speak of the Most High God and everybody around you is a Jew, who are they all thinking of? Well, they're all thinking of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God known as Yahweh. But in Philippi, where there are no Jews, what are they thinking of? When she calls out this message on the streets of Philippi, not one person hearing her is thinking Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, they're thinking Zeus. He's the most high God. Or if they're from another culture, whatever, you know, if they're an Egyptian, uh, they're raw. He's the most high God. They're not thinking like you and I are thinking when we hear this. For we read this with our bias. We don't hear it the way it was heard. And now the moment we realize that, that she is proclaiming them to be the servants of some false god, we now understand Paul's frustration. All of a sudden it makes sense that Paul is annoyed with her. We are not servants of some false god. Knock it off. Stop lying about us. Stop telling the untruths, and we did not come to be healers. We came to bring the way of eternal, lasting salvation. But notice in his frustration, Paul does not yell at her. Isn't it interesting how Luke words it? He turned to the Spirit and said to it, come out of her. In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And the girl who is bound outwardly and inwardly is in that moment by the gospel of Jesus set free. She's now free, at least inwardly. In his letter to Philemon, Paul takes up the question of Christians owning Christians, of a Christian owning a slave who is a Christian, and he encourages Philemon to release Onesimus. But I doubt that Paul would have that kind of authority with these slaveholders, so she may have continued to be enslaved in her body. But what good would she have been to them? They've lost their profit margin. She is set free. The gospel gave her freedom. Jesus Christ, recognized as the true God, the one who really is the most high God, let me set you straight, it's not Zeus, it's not Ra, it's not Apollo, it's not any of the other Olympians, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the most high God. Not because he sits atop a mountain throwing lightning bolts, but because he came as a baby and obeyed fully, and lived out a perfect life, and willingly died in our place. It is for that reason, the scriptures tell us, that God gave him the name above every name. It is for that reason that he is exalted, that he is the most high God. And when the truth of Jesus Christ reigns in this girl's life, she is set free. Consider now the contrast to Lydia, or more correctly, the overwhelming similarity. For we are tempted to look at a passage like this and see Lydia as all there. She's got it all together. She is high standing in society. She is a 
a, a God-fearer. She worships the true God. But she worshiped the true God in ignorance, without understanding how he had come for her. You say, well, yeah, but when Paul told her, boom, she, she believed. I mean, she got there. I mean, she was already primed and ready to go. But that's not what the text says. Did you catch how Luke worded it? And in verse uh, uh, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She's got it all together. She's, she's, she's just, she's misright. She's the whole package. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's easy to read this text and see the slave girl as the one set free by God. And Lydia, well, she just was a good person and boom, she was there. No, God set them both free. God worked in both lives. It was the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed both women. Without regard for their social standing, without regard for where they were in society, without regard for their wealth or their cleanliness, their bathing habits, their attire, anything else. The power of the gospel changed both of them. And they become the nucleus of a wonderful church there in Philippi. It's interesting when you read the letters of the New Testament, how many of them deal with all the sorts of terrible problems in the church. But the letter of Philippi is a positive, encouraging, upbeat letter. Oh, yeah, there's some guidance there for the church. No church is perfect. But it's a good church. And these two women are the starting point of that congregation. We like people who are like us, and so does God. But God looks down and sees all human beings as being created in his image. You know, it's easy to think about what's going on in our world today and to think about how they need the gospel. Whoever they is, whatever side of the thing you're on, it's the other side that needs the gospel. But if you thought about the Lydia's around you, if you're a, a, an upper middle class person of some privilege and position, have you thought about how your other Lydia's need the gospel? It's not them who need the gospel. It's me and us who need the gospel. And if you identify more closely with the slave girl in the passage... It's easy to think about, well, of course, you know, we're oppressed and we can't do it. You know, we need help. We, yes, but you need the gospel. That's where the change begins. And it's not them, the other side. It's not the Lydia's of the world that need the gospel, but us also. It is tempting to look at difficult situations and assume that the other side is the problem but it is a reminder that I need to be changed. I need the gospel at work in me. I need it to set me free from the demons that drive my evil doings, and my own flesh drives them even more. Whether I am Lydia or the slave girl, I need to be set free by Jesus Christ. 
It is a process that we saw in Hebrews a couple of weeks ago is accomplished once for all and simultaneously ongoing. It is both a completed and still underway process. As we await its completion, let's look at this passage and see ourselves in it and see our need and the needs of those like us, those around us. And let's also see those who are not like us as being like God in his image and recognize that their differences from us are not that great. No matter which side of the issues you're on, without Jesus, you're doomed to hell where your politics won't matter one iota. And no matter what side of the positions you're on, with Jesus, bonds can be built, fellowship can be had, communion with the Lord and with each other can be ours. Oh, it's not, it's not an instantaneous thing. It's not an easy thing. We saw a few weeks ago Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways. It's not automatic. But it's the only Let's pray. Lord, let us see ourselves in this text. Whether we regard ourselves as high-born people of position and privilege or low-born slaves, let us see ourselves as in need of the gospel. Let us see ourselves as in need of you opening us up and setting us free. And Lord, we ask you for that. And many of us, you have set us free from the, the curse of sin. We are not facing damnation. We are not facing your judgment. And yet, Lord, there are still sins that entangle, and we seek freedom from those. And, Lord, we also seek boldness to share the gospel with others and to recognize not just the need of those over there, but the need of those who are around us and like us. They, too, need to hear about Jesus, let us share him boldly so that your church might be built up and your name glorified. We pray this in him. Amen.